Lots of channels, nothing to watch, especially if you're searching for the truth. It's time to interrupt your regularly scheduled programs with something actually worth watching. Salem News Channel, straightforward, unfiltered, with in-depth insight and analysis from the greatest collection of conservative minds like Hugh Hewitt, Mike Gallagher, Sebastian Gorka, and more. Find truth. Watch 24-7 on SNC.TV and on Local Now, Channel 525. This podcast is brought to you by Dr. Kirk Elliott, PhD, in an uncertain world, in an uncertain economy. If you're looking for wealth management solutions and financial advice, go to kirkelliottphd.com and make an appointment today. Coming up, I'll argue the logic of retaliation in considering how Israel should respond to the Hamas attacks. Joel Rosenberg, the best-selling author, host of the Rosenberg Report, will join me from Israel to talk about Jews and Christians and Muslims and the problem of coexistence. Alex Marlowe, editor of Breitbart News Network, is also going to be here. We'll talk about current events in the context of his new book, Breaking Biden. Hey, if you're watching on Rumble or listening on Apple, Google, Spotify, please subscribe to my channel. This is the Dinesh D'Souza Show. this voice. The times are crazy in a time of confusion, division, and lies. We need a brave voice of reason, understanding, and truth. This is the Dinesh D'Souza Podcast. We learn more um, every day, maybe even every few hours, about the carnage in Israel and the aftermath of the Hamas attack. And uh, just this morning, just um, riveting and heartbreaking images and, and reports of a whole group of babies, I mean, infants, uh, massacred. Now, as Debbie and I were talking about this on the way to the podcast, we were saying, well, you know, sometimes when you have a bombing raid uh, on Dresden or a bombing raid, you find people who are collateral damage. You have families that are killed. You have um, ceilings that fall onto people. You have people who get incinerated. But somehow there does seem to be an important moral difference between that, where you're bombing uh, to strike, let's just say, targets in a particular town. And in this case, perhaps this will happen in Gaza. But uh, that is not the same as going into a house and uh shooting people, decapitating them. And again, we're not even talking about the male head of the household, or we're not talking about fighting age people, we're talking about infants. So think about the kind of conscience or really lack of conscience it would take to do that. Now, very interestingly, until almost yesterday, Obama was totally silent about all this. And uh, and I found a meme uh, that was, um, this is from France Fanon. France Fanon is the anti-colonial um, uh, guy. I think he's originally from Martinique. He's an anti-colonial writer. He also fought in the war in Algeria. Violence is a cleansing force. It frees the native from his inferiority complex and from his despair and inaction. It makes him fearless and restores his self-respect. So this is the ideology that drives groups like Hamas. We are an anti-colonial force overthrowing uh, Israeli uh, colonization. Now, of course, the historical truth is the exact opposite. The Jews were there first. This is and was their land. 
they've returned to their ancestral homeland. When the Muslims um, came around in the 7th century, they conquered the Christian lands, they conquered Jerusalem, they conquered uh, what is now Israel. So they colonized those lands and then declared them to be Muslim lands. So this colonization argument, where at the very least you could say is it cuts both ways. But then interestingly, Obama appears now today with a strong denunciation of Hamas. And of course, as in what I read, it was like a welcome surprise from Obama. But I, when, since we're dealing with Obama, you know, you're dealing with a, a Machiavellian, you know, you're dealing with a snake. And this is exactly the snake that comes up in the garden with a very innocent face and says to Eve, Oh, you know, I've, I've eaten the apple. I'm not dead. Look, nothing's happened to me. I mean, this is totally Obama. So I'm thinking here you've got the, the arsonist of the Middle East, the guy who sort of set fire to the whole region, the guy who inflamed Iran and subsidized Iran, the guy who was championing the overthrow of, of Arab regimes so he could create carnage and chaos in the in the Middle East. This guy, the, the arsonist, is now showing up as the fire marshal. Oh, I, I, I smell some fumes. Something seems to be amiss. How can I help? <laughs> you know, absolutely nuts. And... Um, and so, look, there's a lot to say about all this, and I've got a lot to say about it, but I'm also not an expert on Israel. I'm not an expert on the Middle East. And so what I'd like, what I've been doing this week and what I'm going to do today and, and probably uh, tomorrow as well is bring on people who are in Israel, are from Israel, are students of the Middle East and have them give you their analysis and take. So today I've got Joel Rosenberg. The uh, best-selling author, someone based in Jerusalem. Uh, now, Joel is a Christian, but he's a Christian who's very pro-Israel, very pro-Jewish, very well-connected within Israel, has interviewed a number of the top Israeli leaders, but not just them, other leaders in the Middle East as well, uh, including the um, the prince of uh, Saudi Arabia. And Joel is a very level-headed and savvy guy. He now, he has an understanding of the Bible and biblical prophecy, but we're not sort of going to go there. At least we're not going to go there yet. We're going to really just focus on an analysis of what's happening in Israel. What is the psychic impact of this on the Israeli mind? Uh, how is Israel going to respond? What is the Hamas sort of strategy here? Is Hamas trying to get Israel to sort of go nuts and, and kill a lot of Palestinians? And then they're going to say, see, look what Israel's doing. These people are the real barbarians. Is there a play being made here for, for world opinion, uh, for the UN? Uh, for China and Russia to become increasingly involved. These are all the looming questions around all this. And so uh, today is going to be a day of digging it all out with Joel Rosenberg. Uh, and then uh, who do we have coming up? We have Eric Stackelback uh, as well, who's coming up um, on, on Thursday to talk about all this. So a lot more to say about what's going on, but this is a, a seismic event, very uh, critical, not just for Israel, but also for also for the world. During times of economic uncertainty and political upheaval, i.e. right now, it's crucial to have a reliable source of financial guidance and insight. That's where Dr. Kirk Elliott, PhD, and his esteemed wealth management advisory firm come into play. 
Dr. Kirk Elliott has distinguished himself with two PhDs in economics and theology. He's built a reputation in expert financial solutions tailored to your unique needs. His firm specializes in wealth management, offering a comprehensive array of services to protect and grow your assets in an ever-changing world. The environment is filled with economic volatility, shifting political landscapes, so finding a trusted partner during these challenging times is essential. Dr. Elliott's firm employs cutting-edge strategies and an understanding of markets to guide you toward financial success. Go to KirkElliottPhD.com. That's Kirk Elliott with two L's and two T's. KirkElliottPhD.com slash Dinesh. Book an appointment. They'll walk you through the investment process. That's KirkElliottPhD.com slash Dinesh. Or you can call or text 720-605-3900. Guys, I'm really happy to welcome to the podcast Alex Marlowe. He's the uh, he's a New York Times bestselling author. He's editor in chief of Breitbart News Network. He's a um, national talk show radio host as well as a podcaster. His website is called alexmarlowe.com and we're going to talk about his book called Breaking Biden. Breaking Biden. Alex, welcome. Um um you know, Biden has a role, I think, here with regard to this crisis in Israel, these Hamas attacks. Some people think that it's merely that the Biden administration was negligent. They were caught napping. They were too focused maybe on domestic issues. But what do you make of the, of the money flow? Six billion dollars going to Iran that, uh, and then Iran saying pretty explicitly, yeah, we're the guys who helped to plan and orchestrate these attacks. Yeah. And Dinesh, it's so great to be on your show. I'm so looking forward to the new movie and for audience members, Dinesh and I go way back half a lifetime for me. Uh, when I first came into contact with Dinesh and hosted him. When I was a student at UC Berkeley, so very, very, very fond memories. I knew to dash before he was cool. That's what I tell everyone. <laughs> um, the the so, but uh, but you're right uh, about this. Iran is openly taking credit. Um, Raisi had said flat out he's going to spend the six billion dollars on whatever he wants. It doesn't have to be on you know diplomatic trade or humanitarian stuff. Well, well, whatever claptrap is in the official paperwork, he, it's not going to happen. And he was literally laughing at us for thinking it would be any different. So uh, this is a total disaster. And of course, blood is on Joe Biden's hands in all this. And it's not just because of the $6 billion. It's because of all of these weapons that he left in Afghanistan, which immediately fell to the hands of terrorists. Uh, it's because his foreign policy across the board has shown an unwillingness to take national security seriously. Look at the border policy. Uh, if you look at the way he's conducted Middle East diplomacy, where he's made a point to alienate Israel and Saudi Arabia and elevate Iran. So uh, everything Joe Biden has done has laid predicate for what happened. And so I blame him more than anyone else aside from the terrorists. Do you think that um, some people have speculated that, hey, look, you know, on the southern border, we don't just have, you know, guys coming over from Tijuana. We've got people from all over the world and a, there's a significant number of Middle Easterners who have made, you know, able-bodied males who have made their way into the United States. So what assurance do we have that let's just say Hamas in coordination with Iran is coordinating 
a strike, and it's a strike with some strategic objective. We can't assume that this is just purely irrational. They have a purpose for doing it. Why wouldn't they send a bunch of fighters to create sleeper cells, perhaps, in the United States? Do you do you think that that's outside the realm of possibility, or isn't that a logical move of a terrorist organization that seeks to uh, move the move the dials worldwide? Of course, it's in the realm of possibility. And anyone who doesn't see that is a fool and willfully blind. It, it is. We have an open border. We allow for all sorts of people in all over the world. Dinesh, I was down at the border a couple of years ago uh, doing a big documentary for Breitbart. And uh, I, there were Chinese nationals that we saw going over the border. They, we saw it in two eyes. We, we don't need to read some report on some blog. We were there. It's not just people with brown skin. It's people from all over the world who can come through the border. So we know that's possible. We also know that these Hamas terrorists are willing to die for their cause. And so they don't care about the consequences. They feel like they're advancing a mission, even if they get caught or they die in the process. That's a very potent and scary combination. And when you've got a guy at the top who clearly doesn't take security issues seriously, we're incredibly vulnerable right now. Do you think that what's going on at the border is that Biden is being influenced by these sort of left wing um, open border lawyers and activist groups and N- NGOs and nonprofits? And they're all basically telling him, listen, you got to do this. And not not only is it the right thing to do from our point of view, but it's it'll it'll accrue to the long term benefit of the Democratic Party. It's going to sort of shift the demographic composition of the country. And all the rest of it is like, who cares? You think that their attitude is, we, we've got to be relatively indifferent of the cartels making money. Who cares? Are a bunch of Chinese and Venezuelans yeah. and the, who cares? Is, is that your understanding of what's going on? In, in a nutshell, I think you're very close. I, I spent 15 months trying to get in the head of Joe Biden, which was, uh, a, a, a hazardous, hazardous undertaking. Um, but I will tell you, he never is guided by doing the right thing. It's never something that guides him. What guides him is power and money for his family. That's what he is. He's an operator. So when you think about the future of the Democrat Party, he wants a dynasty. He wants a legacy. Uh, they're dependent on having an influx of new voters come in because as people get raised in America, they grow up. Uh, they realize the values you've been preaching, Dinesh, for 20 years. Uh, they, they realize those are good values. So they become Republicans, they become conservatives. So they have to import this new group of people. And he has to appease for today his left-wing base. That is his backbone. That's his backstop against any of the scandals that take place with, that involve him. He will always dodge those bullets and come out unscathed so long as the left-wing base is happy. And they like open borders. They like the idea of America is not a special place or an exceptional place. It's just a blob of land between Mexico and Canada, and we should let whoever wants to come in, come here, and do whatever they please. That's the base viewpoint. That's the globalist viewpoint with those world elites you referred to who are cutting the checks around the world to enable people like Biden. They're all on the same page on this. So Biden's hands are totally tied. He's basically got to leave the border open no matter how vulnerable leaves us. We'll be right back with Alex Marlowe, author of Breaking Biden. Last month, the G20 announced it welcomed discussion of the effects of implementing central bank digital currencies in their countries. Well, 
These digital currencies could allow the government to track every purchase you make. They could allow officials to prohibit you from purchasing certain products or even freeze or seize part of or all of your money. Now, in essence, this would enables the government to control your finances. And a lot of concerned Americans, me included, are diversifying our assets into physical gold with the help of Birch Gold Group. Now, if you want a physical asset held in a tax-sheltered retirement account, you should call Birch Gold. Debbie and I are customers. We buy our gold through Birch Gold. Find out for yourself. Text to Nesh to 989898. They'll send you a free information kit on gold. And here's the easiest way to become a Birch Gold customer. If you have an IRA or a 401k, maybe from a previous employer, Birch Gold can help you convert it into an IRA in gold and you don't pay a penny out of pocket. Text to Nesh to 989898. Claim your free information kit on gold. Then call them because if digital currency becomes a reality, It'll be nice to have some gold to fall back on. I'm back with Alex Marlowe, Editor-in-Chief of Breitbart News Network. His website, alexmarlowe.com, the book Breaking Biden. Uh, Alex, you said something fascinating, which is the sort of effort to uh, get into Biden's head and look to see what is what is there. Now, do you think that Biden is steering the canoe in terms of moving the country or do you think that he is just a a willing go-along guy and that there's a cabal of people presumably unnamed and they're the ones who make the decisions i mean i read that even with the the hamas attack which occurred in the middle of the night they didn't wake up biden they told him at like eight in the morning which means that for many hours in effect somebody else was the president of the united states yeah, I actually do think Biden's in charge, but he is, he, I think he's in charge in the sense that he built the system. So people are uh, elsewhere in the system making big decisions. Uh, it's a, I think Brian Biden is much smarter than uh, people let on and people want to believe, but he's not some sort of a genius. But after 50 years in Washington, he's built a sufficient Rolodex and has sufficient command of where the levers are and how to manipulate them uh, that I think his system is in place. And I think that system does involve him getting a lot of rest because he's very old and uh, he, he knows that everyone around him knows that. And he's not bringing any particularly great decisive uh, decision making or any sort of innate instincts that are, are so out of the realm of normal. I mean, think about his foreign policy over the course of his lifetime. He's been wrong on virtually everything, and he's had a reverse course on everything. Uh, Robert Gates, Obama's Secretary of Defense, uh, who said that Joe Biden's been wrong on every foreign policy issue for 40 years. Well, it's been another 10 since he said that, and he's gotten all those wrong. So there's no reason to wake up Joe Biden. You're not going to get anything out of him uh, in the middle of the night. Uh, but I think he's ultimately in charge because he's the guy at the top of the machine, and over 50 years, he's the one who built it. Do you see him, I mean, kind of the way I picture him is he's he's kind of a, a mafia boss, if you will, of a special sort. Um, the mafia boss, first of all, tends to be somebody who patronizes the immediate family and Biden uses the family as a kind of vehicle for his for his corruption organization. But mafia bosses also build all kinds of allies. They they have allies in the media who are there to cover for them. They've got allies. They've obviously got very good lawyers who cover for them. So is it uh, is it helpful to think of, of Biden as a kind of Don Corleone of the United States? 
I 100% think that. And if you look at some of the language that his family members use, it's very mafioso ask. And I have a couple of instances in Breaking Biden. Um, and you know what's interesting is that uh, Bo was occasionally embarrassed by some of the mafia talk. Uh, that the rest of his family members were using when they were trying to cut these deals. So it's not just the deals that I examine. I examine sort of what goes into them. And a lot of it is Bidens who don't really know anything about the topic they're, they're, or the uh, industry they're getting into. They're having to figure it out. And they figure it out by intimidation. And they figure it out by name dropping and essentially threats. Uh, but so what ends up happening is cuts, the, the checks get cut. And then all of a sudden, those people are indebted. And they like getting the money in and they liking the protection that a guy as powerful as Biden can provide them. Uh, one of the clearest examples happening in broad daylight is how industries like Silicon Valley have gone along with Joe Biden. I'm sure they're not impressed with Joe Biden as a person, but they know if they cut enough checks to him and Kamala Harris, he's going to leave them alone. So these are the, some of the biggest censors in the history of the planet. People who have an agenda to silence people like you and me, Dinesh. Uh, they know so long as Joe Biden's in there, they're safe. So they're not going to oppose Joe Biden, even if a better, more charismatic, maybe more uh, ideological figure comes along who shares their values. They know they're safe with Joe. And this has been the theme. I mean, you're making a really interesting point, which is that, and it's puzzled me because Silicon Valley had a libertarian thrust in its early years. And then suddenly that kind of all went away. And the very people who talked about liberation and, uh, you know, the, the world being a single open community, all of that rhetoric just sort of got pushed aside. And suddenly these people became censors on the sort of Xi Jinping model. And I wondered, like, what's the motivation for this incredible change of heart? And what you're saying is it's partly a cunning realization that we can maintain our monopolies. I mean, I'm thinking here, for example, of Google uh, and have the government stay away from us if we do their bidding on the censorship front. That's better than I could have said it. That's exactly what I'm saying. Now, do you think the American people are sort of getting the picture on Joe Biden? I mean, I recognize there's a thick fog of media protection. Uh, conservative media has a more limited reach than the combined forces of the left-wing media. But is our message breaking out? No, it's not. And, and that's why I wrote the book, because I want to empower people. I am very encouraged by some of the investigations that are happening, but they're, I don't count on them to ultimately free America of this corrupt and dangerous family. That's why I want to empower people with a playbook, give them some ideas and some arguments and some motivation to take the next 13 months super seriously, because Joe Biden can be defeated. We know that the system is stacked against us. We know that with cheap by mail and with all the various automatic voter registration efforts and the media censorship, trying to censor your stuff, Dinesh, trying to censor my stuff, trying to ignore us uh, when we've got the goods, uh, trying to attack us if they can see any opening. We know all that's happening. But I still think the American people, if we give them the right arguments and the right motivation, people like you and me can get people fired up enough to get to the polls and vote this guy out. So maybe, maybe we get bailed out. We finally get the photo of Joe with the big corkboard check shaking Xi Jinping's hand, and we can finally put an end to this. But if that doesn't happen, and I'm not sure it will, then I think we need to be prepared 13 months to go out and vote this guy out. Absolutely. Alex Marlowe, thank you for joining me. The book Breaking Biden, the website alexmarlowe.com. Thanks to Dash.
Mike Lindell has a passion to help you get the best sleep of your life. He didn't just stop with the My Pillow pillows. He's also created the Giza Dream bed sheets. Now we have the pillows, we have the bed sheets. We love them. The sheets look and feel great, which means an even better night's sleep, which is crucial for your overall health. Mike found the world's best cotton called Giza. It's ultra soft and breathable, but also extremely durable. And Mike's latest deal, sale of the year. For a limited time, you get 50% off the Giza Dream sheets, marking prices down as low as $29.98, depending on the size. Go to MyPillow.com, enter promo code Dinesh, there you'll find not just this great offer, but deep discounts on all the MyPillow products, the pillows, the robes, the mattress topper, MyPillow kitchen towel sets, and so much more. The number to call, 800 876 Again, 800-876-0227 or go to MyPillow.com. Make sure to use the promo code D-I-N-E-S-H Dinesh. Guys, I'm really uh, pleased to welcome to the podcast Joel Rosenberg. He's been on before. He's a New York Times bestselling author, 17 novels, five nonfiction books. He is also the editor-in-chief and founder of two news and analysis websites, All Israel News and All Arab News. His website, joelrosenberg.com. He's also executive producer and host of The Rosenberg Report. Uh, and uh, Joel is joining us from Israel. Joel, um, Israel has been your base now for quite a while. You sort of survey events that are global, but sort of through the lens and through the base uh, of, of Israel. Let's let me start by just asking you about the psychic impact of these Hamas attacks. I just saw today about the discovery of the 40 babies that had been uh, slaughtered. Uh, I mean, if it if it affects us so much here, all this far away, what must it be like for Israelis up close to see and cope with this kind of thing? Well, Dinesh, it's great to be with you from Jerusalem, from our capital. Um, <laughs> where do I begin? Uh, let me try to give you a few uh, macro numbers and a few personal observations. But you're right, just starting with the babies. I mean, this was the biggest slaughter of Jews since the Holocaust. Okay, we're we're already at more than 900 Israelis murdered in the last uh, 72 to 96 hours. Uh, we're almost 4,000 rockets and missiles inbound right now. Uh, so far, we are uh, 2,400 uh, Israelis wounded. We've got a hundred, at least 100, maybe 130 Israelis captured and and taken into Gaza as hostages. And this is our this is Israel's Pearl Harbor. Okay, this is Israel's 9/11. We were blindsided by this. We shouldn't have been. Okay, we could, but we can talk later about the colossal, the staggering, uh, inconceivable uh, intelligence failure of the greatest intelligence uh, power in the Middle East. And, and one of the biggest and most impressive intelligence forces in the world. So how did that happen? But, but in terms of the, the psychic impact, as you say, uh, so first to think about, uh, again, the most Jews killed in a, in a four day period since the Holocaust. Secondly, you're talking about, uh, really, you're talking, when you talk about Hamas, the, the terrorist organization leading this charge, you have to think ISIS. I, I think most Americans aren't familiar with Hamas. They, they, they may have heard the term. It doesn't mean anything, but ISIS does. The Islamic State does. So Hamas terrorists came in. They shot women, children, babies, their fathers in front of each other. Okay. 
Uh, we're seeing videos of people describing uh, people being shot 20, 30, 40 times in the face and obliterating them. Heads have been chopped off. Homes filled with Jews trapped inside set on fire. This is ISIS, okay? It's the same demonic, satanic uh, spirit uh, that we saw committing genocide in Syria and Iraq, right? Now it has stormed our borders. Now they've always hated us. We get it. <laughs> but uh, when you have more than 900 Israelis murdered in, in just a few days, uh, just think about it. we're a small town here. We're a small country. We have a population of about 10 million. You in the United States, and that's where I grew up, I'm a dual citizen, U.S. Israeli. United States has about 330 million, right? So the United States is about 33 times larger. So just try to, you know, 900 murders are, are horrible at, if, in any place in the world. But if you think about the psychic impact, think about if you were reporting right now that 30,000 Americans had been killed in 96 hours. Like, that would be 10 times worse than 9-11. And I was living in Washington, D.C. on 9-11. You, you, you know, I don't, I don't remember exactly where you were. You might have been in New York, New York at that time. But the point is 3,000 dead in one day changed America forever. And, and so if you think of that effectively, the, for our population size, you're talking about something 10 times worse. That's, that's how bad it is. It's literally a worse civilian massacre in the history of modern Israel. And, and then, Joel, the Hamas people are threatening that if Israel retaliates in a certain way, they will start not only killing the hostages, but making audios and videos of these decapitations and, and, and putting it out for the world to see. So one can only imagine the trauma of the Israeli families and then by extension of Israelis in general that this sort of slaughter is not over. Yeah. Well, and, and that is the Hamas uh, objective right now. What they want to do is draw us into a very bloody uh, ground war uh, in God, in the Gaza Strip. Now, you, you might ask yourself, why would you? you know, and, and by the way, just to be clear, to finish your point, and, and they're hiding behind the human shields of our women, children, and men. And they're hiding behind two million Palestinians who've done nothing wrong in the Gaza Strip, who don't want to be under the Hamas reign of terror, but they don't have any choice. These are people who are bloodthirsty, you know, satanic, like lunatics. So what are you supposed to do? Um, well, Joe, so let me, let me, let me pa- have you pause right now because we'll take a short break. I want to get into this topic of Hamas's objective when we come back. Debbie and I are on a really good health journey, but we still struggle to eat enough fruits, veggies, and fiber. Now, lucky for us, we discovered Balance of Nature, and what better way to get all your fruits and veggies plus fiber than with Balance of Nature? This is Balance of Nature's fruits and veggies in a capsule, so easy to take, made from fresh whole produce. The produce is powdered after an advanced vacuum cold process, which stabilizes the maximum nutrient content. And this is Balance of Nature's Fiber and Spice, a proprietary blend of 12 spices, 
for overall and digestive health. Join Debbie and me. Start your journey to better health right now. Call 800-246-8751 or go to balanceofnature.com. You'll get 35% off your first preferred order by using discount code AMERICA. Again, that's balanceofnature.com or call 800-246-8751. Get 35% off your first preferred order by using discount code AMERICA. I'm back with Joel Rosenberg, editor-in-chief of All Israel News and host of The Rosenberg Report, the website, joelrosenberg.com. Joel, you were saying, uh, and I think this is um, very important, that Hamas, they may very well be savages, they may very well be a death cult, but our analysis of what they are trying to accomplish here cannot stop with that. Uh, they have a goal, they have a strategy, they have a purpose, what is that purpose? Well, first you have to understand, Dinesh, that it it's not their own purpose. It, it, it's coming from Iran. It's coming from the Iranian regime into Iran, who funds them, arms them, and directs them. Now, Secretary of State uh, Antony Blinken uh, said on CNN the other day that uh, there's no evidence, there's no smoking gun that that this is coming from Iran. He <laughs> okay, you don't need a smoking gun. This is this is a small terrorist organization that gets all their money and all their weapons uh, from Tehran. And the Biden administration just gave six billion dollars to the terrorist regime in Tehran. Like it, it, it takes willful blindness not to see that this is an Iranian strategy, not a Hamas strategy. But OK, so uh, just to be clear, <laughs> OK, you, you get what you pay for. Right. You give terrorists six billion dollars. You're going to get more terrorism, not less. OK. So what does Iran want? What Iran wants is two things. First, they yes, they want dead Jews. Absolutely. But what they really want are dead Palestinians. Okay. Why do they want dead Palestinians? They want photos and video of dead Palestinians so that CBS, CNN, MSNBC, uh, the New York Times, Al Jazeera, Turkish media, and of course, Iranian media will broadcast these images and say, see, you, that Israel, those Jews, they're the monsters. And people will forget. We've seen this over and over and over and over again. They'll forget the savagery of the first four days, right? The moment Israel starts, I mean, it's already starting to happen. But it, as we start to invade, because we have no other choice, we have to eradicate the Hamas regime there in, in Gaza. But once that happens, this strategic objective of Iran is more dead Palestinians, so that they can flip the script on us and make us the evil party in this. Why? So they can blow up these peace processes. Uh, Tehran is deeply terrified of Israel making one peace treaty with Arab Muslim countries after another. We've got six now, including four under the Trump administration, the Abraham Accords, and we're inbound on a major game-changing, winner-take-all, like, like change the paradigm entirely, Peace and Normalization Treaty with the Saudis. Tehran cannot abide by this. Again, I, I can't emphasize it enough. Iran wants to blow up this peace process because they can't abide by Israel making peace and being seen as a good guy, not just in the Middle East, but in the world. And so that's Iran's uh, strategic objective. Um, ultimately, of course, Iran wants to literally annihilate us. They're the ones that have said over and over again on the record, their the Iranian leaders want to wipe Israel off the map. So, so genocide is their goal. But the first stop in their object, you know, the first immediate objective is to 
is to, you know, blow up this peace process. I mean, Joel, this is very interesting because, of course, in earlier wars with Israel, you have had a fairly unified Arab world and Muslim world coming together against Israel. But under Trump and subsequently, it looks like a lot of these Arab countries have decided that we can we can do business with Israel. We can live alongside Israel. And you're saying that really, ultimately, that's what Iran wants to change. Now, would you say that that Russia and um, and China are kind of opportunistically looking in here? Do they see Iran as a potential ally so that you've got a sort of Russia-China-Islamic axis, maybe even ultimately encompassing Turkey? What's the big picture as far as the superpowers are concerned? It's a great question, Dinesh. And I, so the answer is yes. Um, and, and, and if you want me to expand on that a little bit more, so, so I wrote a nonfiction book two years ago called Enemies, and allies, right? 20 years after 9-11, where are we? Who are our enemies and who are our allies? Because a lot has changed in these 20 now, now 22 years. And in the book, I, you know, I, I sat down with Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, right? He, he, he hasn't done almost any interviews. He just did one with Fox News, but not for a book. I'm the only one I met with him for four hours over two different occasions. Went on the record with me, told me that the Iranian leader, the supreme leader of Iran is the new Hitler. Okay. You know, I never thought I would even be in Saudi Arabia as a Jewish evangelical Israeli American. I know that's a lot of identities, but, uh, uh, you know, to be in Saudi, to be in Riyadh, much less to be in the palace, much less interviewing the crown prince, uh, the most consequential, but also the most controversial leader in the region. So, so that's the way the Saudis see him. And I sat with Mohammed bin Zayed, that leader of United Arab Emirates, King Abdullah of Jordan, President al-Sisi in Egypt, uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu. So the book goes through this. And what I describe in Enemies and Allies is, yes, Russia specifically is building this very close military, economic, strategic alliance with Iran. It's never happened in centuries, but it's happening over the last 20 years since it started before Putin, but it has accelerated under Vladimir Putin, right? Iran is selling and sending killer drones to Russia so Russia can kill more Ukrainians. This is a symbiotic relationship between two, you know, uh, evil powers. China definitely wants Iran in its orbit, first and foremost for oil. China buys about 50% of of Iran's oil, so it needs a lot of of oil as a massive and growing uh, economic power. It, it, It also wants to just pull together anybody that hates America, right? So, I don't know that China yet is specifically anti-Israel, right? I think we're a little too small, uh, but 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 Putin and Xi Jinping want anybody that hates America in their in their new alliance. We'll be right back. You don't have to live with aches and pains. There is now a remedy, and it's called Relief Factor. Debbie and I started taking Relief Factor a couple of years ago, and what a difference we've seen in our joints. Nothing short of amazing. Aches and pains are totally gone thanks to this 100% drug-free solution called Relief Factor. How does it work? Relief Factor supports your body's fight against inflammation. That's the source of aches and pains. More than a million people have tried Relief Factor. About 70% have gone on to order more because it works for them. Debbie's a true believer. She can now do exercises, planks, push-ups that for a long time she wasn't able to do. So Relief Factor has been a real game changer for her, her aunt, other members of our family, Mike right here in the studio, and for many other people. You too can benefit. Try it for yourself. 
Order the three-week quick start for the discounted price of just $19.95. Go to relieffactor.com or call 800-4-RELIEF to find out more about this offer. The number again, 800-4-RELIEF or go to relieffactor.com. You'll feel the difference. I'm back with Joel Rosenberg, Editor-in-Chief of All Israel News, host of the Rosenberg Report, the website joelrosenberg.com. Joel, given the sort of specter that you have laid out here with all these foreign powers and superpowers with their eyes on what's going on in Israel, uh, is there a danger that we could be lurching, perhaps unwittingly, toward World War III? Well, you'd think that the biggest ground war in Europe would be bad enough, right, for the world to, to deal with. Um, but now you've got, you know, and you, and you literally had uh, Secretary of State Blinken just saying a couple of days before this all happened that the Middle East was the quietest that it's been in, in decades. And uh, but what, you know, I, I'm, I'm hesitant to say World War III. I'm hesitant to even make it prophetic. But, you know, really know at this point where this thing is going. When there's a hot war at this bad in the Middle East and in Europe, then you think, what what could happen next? Like, like we're literally in Israel right now. The big fear we have is not about invading Gaza and finishing off Hamas. It will be bloody. It will be painful. The world will turn against us in many ways, but we will win. The concern right now is that Iran will open up another front, okay, from the north, right? <laughs> Iran also funds, arms, and directs Hezbollah, the terrorist organization that, that controls the failed state of Lebanon, right? And, and Hezbollah has about 150,000 missiles aimed at us in Israel, much more powerful, much more deadly. If that goes up, and I wrote a, a political thriller about it a few years ago, the Beirut Protocol, that is a worst case scenario short of nuclear war, okay? But that would mean, in that scenario, I think we hit Tehran. I literally think Prime Minister Netanyahu would say, this is all coming from Tehran, and Tehran will pay. And now you're in the biggest war in the history of the Middle East in, you know, in the modern era, right? So, but, you know, at the same time, China is thinking, well, gosh, we only have a year and a half left. If we're going to go invade Taiwan on Biden's watch, when President Biden is so weak that he he uh, he let Afghanistan blow up and the Taliban take over on the 20th anniversary of 9-11, he let Israel blow up and Hamas storm in on the 50th anniversary of the Yom Kippur War, uh, right? If, if Biden is so weak that Putin thinks he can just go invade Ukraine, then the China's calculating right now, Xi Jinping and his inner circle are thinking, maybe this is the moment, because what if Donald Trump gets back in power? What if DeSantis gets in power? Like, like what if what if Republicans who are serious about national security get in power? Then what? So I think, Dinesh, we're in the most dangerous two-year, year-and-a-half period in the world in a long, long time. And uh, But but I don't want to, I don't want to speculate that that's you know, the end of the world as we know it. The Bible says it will happen. Uh, we hope it doesn't happen on our watch, but uh, it's bad right now. Joel, let's talk briefly just about this intelligence failure. And uh, certainly there's a lot of detail on the ground to find out sort of who, you know, went wrong and what organizations and agencies failed. But let me ask you, do you think that the fact that Israel is 
like the United States, a deeply divided society. Um, and so, for example, there were bitter protests over Netanyahu and the uh, reform of the Supreme Court. It seems that there's been a scorched earth campaign against Netanyahu mounted by the Israeli left. So if a society ceases to be a tribe and becomes warring factions, isn't it true that it, this, that, it produces this kind of vulnerability that then comes not from where you're looking for, uh, for it, but really from the outside. Well, Dinesh, that's an interesting question, especially the way you phrased it. Let me, let me look at it just briefly in a couple different pieces. First, this is a, a, you know, the most staggering intelligence failure in the history of Israel, at least since 1973, uh, literally 50 years ago this past weekend when we were invaded by Egypt and Syria and we didn't see it coming and it almost went nuclear. Okay, that's the Yom Kippur War. And and as we've been reporting on all Israel news, as we're doing, you know, minute by minute, hour by hour coverage, uh, and I encourage people to come to allisrael.com, allisrael.com. You could sign up for our free uh, email newsletters. They're free, but the, every day you will get the latest headlines that you can trust, not CNN and you know, whatever. So, um, but as we're covering this is a staggering intelligence failure. It's, it's, it's our fault. You have to ask why, how could it be? I think we're going to find that out. We don't know at the moment. It just doesn't seem possible. Not just that we didn't know it was coming, but there was almost no combat soldiers on that border. How is that possible? I think the general sense that I have is that Israel's leaders have been lulled into a false sense of security because of all the peace treaties and thought, you know, we've got this thing under control. But the thing is, yes, we are making progress with huge peace treaties. It is changing the reason for the better. But you can't let monsters out of their cage or they're going to, you know, kill everybody across the countryside. So that's what, you know, that was a, that I, it just, it, Israelis are angry, but we're, 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 we're bottling up that anger right now because we have to unify. Okay. I believe and I, I want a, a national emergency unity government with all the people that were against Netanyahu now to come into the government and take key positions and fight this war together. If, when we're done and we win, we'll have another election and see where the dust clears, right? If, remember, you, uh, but anyway, that, that, so Netanyahu has a, has a, has a choice here. Netanyahu has one, been one of the greatest leaders in the history of Israel. Okay. Maybe the greatest, but. Right now, if he doesn't win this war and win it decisively, he will go down as the greatest failure. So he, so I think he, he needs to, and I think he wants to. I did work for him 23 years ago, but I, you know, and I followed him very closely ever since, but, but I don't work for him now. Um, I think he, he does want to bring in like for a, an opposition leader like Benny Gantz. Benny Gantz is now the most popular politician in Israel, but he's the former chief of staff of the entire Israeli army and the former defense minister. So this man knows what he's doing. And his number two in his party, or number three, is another chief of staff of the former of the Israeli army. Netanyahu needs these people around him, not just to know what to do, that's true, but to have the broad consensus to do it, because it's going to be hard. And... Hamas is, you, you, if that national unity government comes, Hamas will have accomplished what nobody else in Israel could do, reunify our country. And I'll just make one more point, Dinesh, and that is this. The fact that we were so at odds with each other, as you described, it's true, and, and for good reasons, but it also was an indicator, all those massive protests of hundreds of thousands of people every Saturday night, 
then we felt secure. Because external threat unifies the Jewish people, unifies Israel. And when we feel relaxed, we start going at each other. And I'm not saying illegitimate issues. Um, I would say the United States, Americans feel pretty secure, generally speaking, internationally, which is why they feel fine about attacking each other at every other level. But God forbid we actually, you know, go to war with China or Russia or, you know, Iran, things will change. And so that's the, I, I, that's actually the short version, but we need people's prayers. And, uh, we, we have never, Israel has never faced something quite like this. And as bad as the war is, the media war against us is about to begin. The sympathy that we're seeing now, Anderson Cooper and others crying on air because of the, 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 the scope of the barbarity uh, inflicted on us, that will change. I, 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 we just know it. And then uh, Israel will be increasingly isolated. And then all bets are off. Then, yeah, if Russia and Iran want to form an alliance uh, and, and come after us, uh, there's certainly a biblical prophecy about that. Let's let's hope we don't get there. Um, but it, these are dangerous and uncharted waters. Absolutely. Thank you, Joel Rosenberg. I really appreciate you uh, joining me. It's an honor. Thank you, Dinesh. We are at the point in the Gulag Archipelago where Solzhenitsyn is describing World War II. It has broken out. It is, in fact, now the summer of 1941. And writes Solzhenitsyn, the wave of the encircled was surging in. He goes, these were the defenders of their native land, i.e. Russians, the very same warriors whom the cities had seen off to the front with bouquets and bands a few months before, who had then sustained the heaviest tank assaults of the Germans, and in the general chaos, and through no fault of their own, had spent a certain amount of time as isolated units, not in enemy imprisonment, not at all, (coughs) but in temporary encirclement and later had broken out. So who are these guys? They're fighting the Germans. They get isolated. They get cut off from the general army. They're now left on their own. They're isolated. They're not captives, but they are sort of in hiding, and then they break out, and they rejoin the army. And instead of being given a brotherly embrace on their return, such as every other army in the world would have given them, instead of being given a chance to rest up, visit their families, and then return to their units, they were held on suspicion disarmed, deprived of all rights, and taken away in groups to identification points and screening centers where officers of the special branches started interrogating them, distrusting not only their every word, but their very identity. So one of the points being made here is that a gulag gives rise to mutual distrust. The whole system treats its own citizens as potential spies, potential enemies, Everybody's to be viewed with suspicion, including people who have been putting their lives at risk to save the country from the Germans. Let's continue. The victory outside Moscow gave rise to a new wave, guilty Muscovites. Now, this is actually preposterous because, well, Solzhenitsyn explains very well. Looking at things after the event, it turned out that those Muscovites who had not run away and who had not been evacuated but had fearlessly remained in the threatened capital, which had been abandoned by the authorities, were by that very token under suspicion either of subverting government authority or staying on to await the Germans. So Moscow is evacuated, the army, the Soviet army is retreating, the Germans are advancing on Moscow, and some people stay. 
Now, you would think that these are the brave guys. They're willing to stay. They're holding out. But no, uh, later, the Soviet government treats them. Well, why did you stay? Is it that you're actually friendly to the Germans? Is that why you stayed? You wanted the Germans to come in so that they were, you could then kind of give them information. Bottom line of it is far from these people being treated well. They are treated extremely badly. And then, says Solzhenitsyn, those who were in Europe got the stiffest punishments of all. And this is, he's now talking about after 1943, he says, when the war turned in our favor, and there now begins a multi-million wave from the occupied territories and from Europe. These are people now flowing into the Soviet orbit. And he says that Russians who found themselves in Europe are treated with the greatest suspicion of all. Now, why is that? Quote, that was because they had seen something of European life and could talk about it. Wow. So the Russians know that their society compared to Europe stinks. Uh, it sucks. It's horrible. And they cannot provide the kind of ease and abundance and freedom and the kind of happy way of life where citizens are kind of chuckling and having a smile on their face on the street. The Russians know we don't have that. So we don't want Russian people, including Russian soldiers, to see that because then they're going to go, wait a minute, what kind of society do we live in compared to these guys? They have it a lot better than we do. Wait a minute. We keep, we're always told in propaganda that Soviet socialism is so much better than Western capitalism. Well, based on observation, that doesn't appear to be the case. So this is what the Soviets are afraid of. And, and it really shows you that at the top ranks of the Soviet regime, they know, they know that capitalism works. And so this gives you a little better insight into propaganda. Propaganda is not something that they keep saying because they think it's true. They know it's not true, but they go ahead with the propaganda anyway because they want to hold their own citizens in captivity. For example, during the first days of the war, one of our destroyers went around on Swedish territory. Its crew proceeded to live freely in Sweden during the rest of the war. After the war, Sweden returned them to us along with the destroyer. Now, what's really interesting is what happens to these people. And um, what happens to these people is that the Soviets grab them. The Soviets grab them and the Soviets imprison them. Now, there's more to the story and I want to pick it up next time because I'm going to go into some detail about this Swedish incident. But let's just set the scene one once more. Soviet soldiers who find themselves in Sweden and they remain in Sweden till the end of the war and they've seen what life is like in this Western country and now they're back in the Soviet Union after the war and the Soviets go, it might be time to put these guys in the gulag. Subscribe to the Dinesh D'Souza podcast on Apple, Google and Spotify or watch on Rumble, YouTube and SalemNow.com.